What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. In 2011, Aton Avenary formed the project Western Standard Time Orchestra, which aimed to meld big band jazz with traditional Jamaican ska. And it started as a studio project. Their first record, Big Band Tribute to Scottalites Volume 1, was a big band reimagination of classic Scottalite songs. Not covers, as they had new arrangements. Over time, the band continued to play different tunes, but always maintaining their core mission of melding trad Jamaican ska, Rocksteady and reggae with big band jazz, usually with a lineup that consisted of 15 to 30 members. Over the last few years, the Agrolites frontman Jesse Wagner has been their consistent lead singer. On November 3rd, Western Standard Time Orchestra releases their brand new Christmas album, Blue Beat Holiday. It features Jesse Wagner showing off his superb crooning chops. To discuss the record, we have on Aton and Jesse. And if you're in L.A., be sure to check out the Western Standard Time Orchestra Blue Beat Holiday Release Party at the Lodge Room on November 25th. So what's your relationship to Christmas music, Aaron? Uh, well, um, I like some of it. I, some of it I don't care for. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the of the classics. I like a lot of Nat King Cole. I've always thought it would be really interesting for there to be a character on a TV show whose favorite genre of music is Christmas music. Uh-huh. And then around Christmas time, they get really like angry because they're like, oh, all these Johnny come lately's jumping on my scene. <laughs> and then like their favorite day of the year is like the day after Christmas when all the Christmas music goes on sale. And they're like, oh, I just picked up, picked up all these great albums for a bargain. Why are you talking about Christmas music anyways? Well, because we talked to a band that put out a Christmas record. Oh, yeah? Is that band called Western Standard Time Orchestra? They sure are. And uh, they have a crooner of a vocalist who I did not know could croon. When we were talking about having you guys on the show, I think like the very first question that popped in my head when I was thinking about Western Standard Time Orchestra 
is um, that you guys tour and you guys have been touring a lot lately. So how many people are, are you guys touring with at this point? What would you say, Aton, about 15 to 20? 15 to 20 people. Okay. Well, the, yeah, the, the band size is the same, um, usually between 15 and 18 people with Jesse singing. Um, yeah, but depending on the budget and the size of the stage and um, all the logistics, um, how many shows we're doing that weekend or something, uh, we might fly out just a few of us or five of us or ten of us. Uh, we just played Mexico City um, about two or three weeks ago, and uh, we flew out half the band, so like about ten of us. Yeah. Okay, but you do sometimes do tours with 15 to 20 people? Uh, when we, when we did Europe, we were all traveling together in two sprinter vans. Um, that was challenging and expensive. Yeah, I bet. But, um, we've streamlined it a little bit more. The more we've done shows in different bigger cities, um, where we have people that have already played with us, it's much easier to just have at least some of the guys from that particular city, like San Francisco or call, you know, Denver, um, San Diego, you know, those kinds of places, uh, Seattle, Portland, those, those, uh, you know, cities we've played in before. So we have guys that have played with us and it's easy to just get some local guys too, to help out. Okay. So you might just slot people in. Yeah. Flying, flying, especially now after COVID though, uh, you know, flight prices have gone way up. And it's just, it's impossible to, you know, get a two, two or $3,000 guarantee. And then four or $5,000 in flights doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, when, when you're splitting up the band between two Sprinter vans, how do you choose who's going to be in which van? <laughs> who, who can get along the best, I guess. I'm... Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, is it like rhythm section in one, in one van, horns in the other, or is it partiers in one and. <laughs> not partiers in the other i guess with, with a band this big you know there's not clicks but you know there's like you know a combo of like two or three people they're like i don't mind rooming with this guy or or you know sure. hanging out with him snoring next to me for the next eight hours while we're driving so yeah it just kind of organically happens we don't like assign like you're in you're number one and the year number two is just sort of like they figured out you're the band leader um is there anyone else in the band that's sort of like a permanent member or is everybody but you a impermanent member? Well, um, the band has changed quite a bit in the last 12 years. Um, you know, we were a studio band at first. Um, the whole concept was just to record these 10 Scottalite songs in a big band format. So it was mainly me, Brian Wallace and Brian Dixon kind of spearheading it. Um, and then we just over time, People either had families or moved on, started, you know, bigger touring bands, um, started families, you know, had children. So things kind of organically just shifted. Uh, but, you know, um, Tom Cook from the Debonairs has been there since the first recording session. He just played our last show. So uh, he recorded on this album. So there, there are people that have stuck around, but just kind of logistically different stories for different people. But we do, we do have people, you know, come back and and join the band again. But yeah, different stories for different people. I okay. see. Okay. Did you think you can make a guess at how many people have been in the band total? <laughs> oh man, no. Uh, it's 
uh, as if like even one time playing with us. Yeah. In the hundreds. Yeah. Over, over the last 12 plus years, I would say hundreds, hundreds of people. Cause you know, we've, we've had people play in Barcelona and people play in Mexico city and Victoria. Um, but it's always an interesting way to kind of figure out what's exciting. Like we, we played supernova uh, a few years back and we actually had, you know, um, some of the skylights sit in. So, um, like Doreen Schaefer sang with us. Um, so like there are all these different situations where we kind of try to make things sort of exciting and new and different where we have like guest artists come in. Um, I know Jesse for, for quite a few different reasons. Um, it, he was also touring tons and tons with, with the Agrolites. Um, and he just started singing with us in the last couple of years. And at this point he's, in my opinion, a permanent member. I mean, I wouldn't want him to go away. Uh, but you know, I, we're all adults and we all make decisions on what, what's important to us and what, where we, what we want to do. So, um, but you know, I, I would say that at this point for the last two years, he's been consistently our vocal vocalist. It's just, you know, if the acrolytes are playing, I know, you know, I totally understand that he's, that's his, that's his, that's his thing. That's his, his baby. Jesse, have you, do you remember the first time you sang with uh, the band? Was it in this two year period or had it been a, an earlier one before that? No, it was actually years. I uh, can't remember the exact year because my memory's so bad, but I think it might've been around what, 2015 or 16, maybe Aton, I would think at the Echoplex or the, uh, the Echo. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we we had a a big um, a big vocalist concert. We had kind of this idea of like let's move from this instrumental band to see see what it's like having a bunch of vocals. So we had a ton of different vocalists, and and Jesse was one of them. And yeah, we had uh, Queen P. We had Greg Lee from uh, from Hepcat. Uh, we had Angelo Moore from Fishbone. Uh, Malik Moore. Um, uh, we had tons of different art, uh, Chris Murray, Colin, Colin Giles. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. It was, it was a cool, big, big party. It was super fun. So that was the first time I, I performed with, I think that was even 2014 even. Okay. Is that that long ago Mm -hmm. then? Yeah. But, um, haven't done anything since. I don't think until this, until recently now, the last, like you said, the last couple of years, it's been a lot of fun. Because I've always wanted to sing with the big band. So this has been like the greatest opportunity. Yeah, so Greg Lee had been the singer for several shows before this couple of year period, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was with us pretty consistently for I think a good six, seven years. It was it was quite a bit. Quite a long time. So um I'm not sure if there was like a story where he wasn't available and you wanted then you needed a new someone and it was and that was someone ended up being Jesse or did you kind of ease into Jesse sort of taking over? Well, I, um, I mean, I don't know how descriptive I want to get into like the, the backstories of all the, all the different people and the bands and the, sure. the histories. <laughs> uh, sure. I don't want to create <laughs> yeah, negativity or whatever, but, um, so, uh, Greg had decided to, to move on and uh, focus on other things, but, Honestly, I've known Jesse for a long time. We've known each other since at least our early 20s, if not before that. I mean, I knew him be- before the Rhythm Doctors and, you know, 
pre pre everything. So, and I I've noticed his stage presence is incredible. His voice is stellar. He's honestly my my favorite vocalist in in our scene for sure. I mean, I I love his singing and he's very versatile and um I don't know exactly at what point I figured out that he could sing this more crooner vibe as opposed to like what you would normally hear him, you know, kind of that gritty, um, raw soul um, sound that he he was getting with the Agrolites. And um, it just it just kind of about pretty much right when he started singing with us, I thought, OK, we need to create some kind of an album that that kind of highlights that that side of his his singing because he's such a. I think I might have been nagging you all. <laughs> <laughs> a, a little here and there, nudging, lightly nudging. I always, I always thought the band was great. Like, I, and then, I, like I said, since I was a little kid, that's what we grew up on. You know, with the, my grandparents and all that was like Sinatra and you know uh, Bobby Darin and Tony Bennett and all that. So it was like the big band thing was always in our family. So it was like. When I heard them doing that and mixing it with playing old ska stuff, I was like, oh, I'd love to be a part of that, you know? Yeah. So I think when I found out, when I saw that Greg wasn't doing much with them anymore, I would kind of throw it in Aton's head, like remind him, like, hey, dude, I love that kind of stuff. And then finally, Aton gave me the call. And uh, I think we did like one show maybe or a couple, but then you that's when you guys were talking about doing the album. Uh, and then we got to collaborate on that. Uh, that one song, uh, uh, habit, habit of happiness. Yeah. Habit of happiness, um, really shows off that you got crooner chops that it's, uh, that it's, it's, it's in your arsenal as a, and, and it sounds like you have been doing it for many years. Yeah. I was singing that stuff before I was ever singing reggae. That's yeah. For sure. <laughs> like, uh, in my early twenties and stuff, we'd do, uh, and it sounds kind of corny, but used to do like talent shows and stuff like that. And I'd always be doing like Mac the Knife or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Beyond the Sea and all these songs. Well, you were also on TV. You're an act. You're 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 an all around guy. You're an actor. It's like yeah. You know, as a kid, I used to do theater and and uh, commercials and stuff. Yeah. So wait, okay, hold on, Jesse. You were in commercials as a kid. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What? Which ones did you do? Well, I, I I was in a I was in a Hidden Valley Ranch commercial. <laughs> Did you have a line? I literally, yeah. You see me for like a minute. I just like passed a bottle of ranch to my mom, my you know, my, <laughs> my fake mom or my sister or whoever it was at a kitchen table, but nothing big. I never. I always I had a lot of those stories where it's like, uh, you know, you almost had the part, and then uh, and then it came to doing the pilot, and then the show didn't get on the air or. You know, they rewrote the script and they wrote your par- character out. But no, I never had like a big, huge part or anything like that. What was your biggest almost? What was your biggest like close to but got canceled sort of thing? <laughs> so there was an audition I did for a show for a uh, show was about a kid running from his from him and his uncle were driving in a car. And I, I didn't know the script, just a part that I had to read, you know, like a three page script. And it's like, I'm in the car with my uncle and we're running from, you know, the, the men in black, suppose, you know, 
because my uncle got abducted by aliens or something. And it was like this big part where I had to like be all <laughs> passionate and like, what are we going to do now? They're going to find us or something like that. And I got to get all teary eyed and all that. And they stopped and paused and got all dramatic and all that. And then the, 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 the dude like that read the script, like walked me out to meet my parents or my dad. Walked us all the way to the parking lot. Was like, yeah, he's got the part. We're gonna, be, it's gonna be big. We're gonna get on TV and all that show. It ended up being the X Files to show the X Files, oh, but shit. they, but they had wrote the script out to where, I don't know, they rewrote it and and cut that whole kid out of the out of the thing, even though he was supposed <laughs> to be like a. There's also uh, some kind of TV show that was gonna be like a Doogie Howser MD kind of a thing where I was like the uh, the 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 Vinny Delapino like friend that lived down the street that would come in through the window and you know like eddie haskell or something yeah. you know and the kid's character's name was lefty and they called him the, the reason why his character's name was lefty was because he was born with a crooked dick i'm not i'm not making i'm not making this up this was like actually in the script like there was gonna be probably an episode where the jokes around about him having a crooked dick and his name being lefty but Wow. But yeah, it was like this Eddie Haskell character. I don't even remember the name of the show. I don't even know if that show had a had a had a name like anything to it even. But that got all the way into like production where they were gonna we were, you know gonna film it and it was gonna get on TV and it was getting down to doing the pilot and then now uh, last minute it's like no it, it the whole thing got canceled. Sorry, but yeah, uh, you could have been lefty. Could have been lefty, man. <laughs> Oh my God! There's Elijah Woods understudy in a certain thing, but he ended up doing, getting, you know, having it. But if he were to die, I was second one up from him. <laughs> the, good, the good son with him and Macaulay Culkin, from what I, I was told by the agent back in the day. But it's like just you know one of those kind of things, man. I could have been Frodo, but you know what? I'm ra- I'd rather be Western Standard Time. Hell yeah! Yeah, <laughs> Frodo's pretty cool though. I definitely like. Yeah, I mean, hearing this. Hearing your story with this music, I understand now. But yeah, when I heard Habit of Happiness, it totally blew my mind how comfortable you were in this style. Because like Aton already said, it's like, we know you from this gritty voice. like, And you're so good at the gritty voice. Ah, thanks. Uh, a lot of cigarettes and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and soul. And a lot of soul. <laughs> yeah. The agrolytes are such a just this tight, not a super big, you know, not a lot of members, rhythmically very like in sync and tight. Yeah. What's it like for you to front that band versus Western Standard Time, which is a totally different thing? Well, the agrolytes definitely party a lot harder than the Western Standard Time. <laughs> That's for sure. We're, we're trying to keep up, though. <laughs> eight has been having fun. No, but um. You know, I, I don't. That, what I loved about about playing with Western Standard Time is the having such a, a huge band behind you and and the energy on stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love I love the power of all the horns and everything. Just you know, the whole being an orchestra. Um, the Agrolites are always fun because it's feeding off each other. You know, like with Roger and, and uh, Jeff and everybody. But but um, it's a different. It's a completely different feeling as far as the energy on stage. And then just as a vocalist, like, do you have to prepare differently for the two bands or approach it different? Well, yeah, I mean, with the Agrolites, I got to make sure that my voice is 
can handle 19 songs of screaming, you know, yeah. and, and yelling, or, you know, or whatever, yelling in key and not blowing my voice out before I get on stage with the, with the Western Standard Time. It's uh, a lot more lower register and, and smoother. So um, it's easier in that sense, but it's also very easy to go in the whole cheese factor of being like, you know, Bill Murray singing Star Wars and the, you know, like that whole, you know, the, yep. the lounge lizard kind of like, yeah. hey. And uh, that's one of the things that always turned me off was when I'd see, you know, like jazz singers doing that kind of vibe. It's coming across with that whole cheese factor to it. How do you keep the cheese out of it? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, like, it's not like, like Sinatra is a whole, you know, Sinatra the way that Dean Martin was or, mm-hmm. or, uh, Tony Bennett and Bobby Darren, just wa- watching them my whole life growing up, it was always like, I, they didn't have that, that element, you know? Yeah. So I guess it's just kind of keeping them in mind. Yeah. Just like a mindset basically. And then also knowing that you're playing, we're doing the old ska stuff and the old ska stuff was not, was, wasn't uh it was tough. It was a tough music, you know, like it was, a, it was a bad boy music. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. guys were rude boy, rude boy music and all that. So it was like, try to keep that whole like you know i don't want to disrespect any any third wave music or anything like that but the whole like you know checkerboard like hey let's i don't know i was just trying to keep it the jamaican thing stays jamaican and then you can add the jazz elements to the more jazzier ones but try to be yourself in the same right rather than imitate too much you know exactly yeah i think there's also the that um kind of italian american vibe yeah um definitely translates into the way you sing and that that definitely has a different vibe than that sort of cheesier approach well that's true i yeah i grew up with with just old italian people like you know on my mom's side so that's the way that my grandfather would act and you know uncle and everybody else so they had that that whole and they all sang too my my uh my uh uncle his name dominic dominic de blasio right he was from uh <laughs> they're all from cleveland but they, he he they moved to vegas in like the 60s or 70s him and my aunt rosalie and they started a whole little kind of like louis prima type act and and uh they played for years that they're doing the whole casino circuit you know throughout those the, those years the 60s and 70s and, oh wow that's cool what's his name the uh the sax player from Louis Prima, Sammy, I uh, can't think of his last name right now, but he was a sax player of Louis Prima. He used to come in and, and guest play with them and stuff like that. So it was like, you know, we already ha- kind of had that going on in our family, that that whole crooner kind of jazz thing. So Yes, uh, Sam Butera. Sam Butera, yeah, that's his name. But anyways, yeah, I got, that whole thing had to, had a lot to do with it too. That's interesting. So it's like, this is a very, this is like another prominent side of your musical identity. Yeah. This is always the, more of the identity that I, that, uh, I thought of getting into growing up my whole life as a, you know, as a young teenager. Cause when I played reggae, I wasn't even a singer. I was just a guitar player in the rhythm doctors and stuff and uh C spot, you know, if anything, I would do backup vocals here and there, mm-hmm. but I never, that was a, that was a different with the Agrolites. It was something that we could just openly create and, and do whatever we want, you know, what we wanted and became, I just became whatever happened with the, with the Agrolites, you know, like, and you could see the metamorphosis throughout the years, 
you go way back on YouTube and watch some Agrolite videos. Yeah. And from the from the clo the outfit changes to the personality on stage. It was a lot more aggressive back in the day, and that's just something I had to learn to be my like just myself when. Western Standard Time was a lot easier because it was like already kind of established with that whole crooner vibe, you know, or like he was saying, the Italian American jazz singer guy or whatever you want to call it. But it was already there. <laughs> so there's a new Western Standard Time um, orchestra record. What's the release date on it? Uh, the vinyl is in store November 17th. And then uh, the 3rd of November, it's going to be available you know, through streaming and all the, all those outlets. Okay. So the big thing is that this is a Christmas record. Well, um, I think probably about two years ago, I, I knew that I wanted to have some sort of, I'm going to put air, air quotes, uh, Skinatra kind of a concept, <laughs> um, where it sort of melds the two worlds of this sort of the, that crooner rat pack, kind of vibe and the blue beat ska swung ska kind of a, a concept and it's sort of just been swimming in my in my mind and i was thinking logistically you know we had just recorded a record um financially i had to start kind of recoup and sort of get in that mindset and it took me a little while but we ended up getting this random i was i was teaching like i do every day and i get this random phone call which i do from time to time um, asking the band to do something. And this was something that we had never done before. Um, there was a tree lighting ceremony in the heart of Los Angeles um, at the main train station, like the the Art Deco kind of old school um, historical um, train station. And they called us randomly and said, would you be, we know, we know the band, we love the band. Would you be able to have a singer um, sing holiday songs i said well theoretically yes but we've never done that before and we'd have to kind of get get you know music for that so i decided to um look online for some some pre-made because the time it was like two or three weeks before the show and i didn't really have time to have the arrangers to start making arrangements it takes takes longer than that so i ended up buying um four or five different um sinatra original uh, arrangements of christmas tunes from from his original records um so on literally on the arrangements it says for sinatra so he, we we ended up um performing this and it went off really well um jesse killed it and the crowd loved it and i thought okay now i can really picture this happening um and then so we already ta started talking that next week about, you know, studio time, uh, what tunes do we want to do? And we got on the phone and sort of kind of uh, did some um, brainstorming. And Jesse ended up coming up with kind of, I think, a list of like maybe 14 or 15 possible tunes that he wanted to sing. And we kind of whittled it down to figure out what what he, you know. Ten or so? Yeah. And then, and then we ended up with about, I think, 10 or 12. But logistically... We, we we wanted to kind of knock them all out in a day, and I think 12 was going to be too much. So we ended up tracking all 10 tunes in, in one day. Well, can you, can you speak a little bit to how you spoke, how you chose songs and what you what you were going for vibe wise, a little maybe a little deeper than just um, you know Sinatra-esque 
Christmas if there was something. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to it, but honestly, uh, Jesse, Jesse and I were kind of fifty fifty on that. It wasn't it wasn't like me saying this is what we need to do. But I think the Sinatra ones, we were kind of like, okay, those are going to happen. But we have about you know another six to eight songs to figure out what else we want to do. And we also uh, Jesse came up with the name of the the album. Uh, the album's name is um, Blue Beat Holiday. Yeah, Blue Beat Holiday. Mm. Most of the record is a lot of Blue Beat style tunes. Yeah, because it fit that it fit that Sinatra esque thing, you know, more than anything else. For for context, Blue Beat's the the ska style, traditional ska style that's got a little bit more of a a snap, a little bit more of a swing to it. Yeah, like the old Derek Morgan stuff or uh, early Prince Buster stuff, like that vibe. Yeah, more of the swingy, gotcha. swingy drum beat on the on the uh, ride. We kind of wanted we were doing the Sinatra songs that we had done at that Christmas thing, uh, the tree lighting thing, which was the you know the the usuals like songs that everybody knows. Uh, uh, let it snow, and you know, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, and so on. So it was like, let's get a. My thought was maybe get a few obscure obscure ones, you know, to kind of like introduce people to. So. Uh, there, I looked up some old Jamaican ones, you know, and there was one that was off of Beverly records. It's called like, uh, I think it's just called Merry Christmas. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yep. And, uh, David Urquidy ended up doing the arrangement on it from, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. You get to have some of the guys that have played with the band do arrangements, like original arrangements and take some like ska blue beat thing and turn it into more of that style, you know, the Sinatra thing. And then of course I wanted to put a Toots and the Maytals one on it. And uh, found this other one I think is called Happy Christmas. <laughs> but it was like before we knew it, though, it was like Happy Album has the title Christmas in it. And I was worried about the way it was going to look. But it was like, hey, it is a Christmas album. But there's like an, there's an Ella Fitzgerald song I always loved called Christmas Island. I threw that in there. And then uh, the, um, what do you call the, the, we? I wanted to get Karina, to Karina Danique uh, from, uh, yeah, it's all crashers. I wanted to get get her involved because I I was doing stuff with her, but we never. She came and guest sang too. Yeah, she's she's incredible. So I want to get her on the album. And there was this beautiful song called uh, "Christmas Alphabet" that that has this whole like three part harmony of uh, uh, female backup backup vocalist. So it's like we got to get her on that one. So yeah, I mean, it just kind of fell fell in, and, and it was like we picked and choose the the best ones. But it's a little bit. Half the album is like really well-known Christmas songs, and the other half is like you know, kind of uh, off-the-wall random ones. Yeah, and one one of my favorites is uh, Dominic the Donkey, and that and that's the one that was I almost and almost didn't make the list. And then um, you know we had come up with a list, and I I think it's like the next day, I don't know if it was a, a voice message or, or a text, but uh, Jesse goes, you know, I was talking to my mom. And uh, she she wants us to do this song, and so it was like <laughs> she pretty much chose that one. If you got an if you got an Italian background, and you're going to do a Christmas album, you got to throw that one on there. Got it. And you also got to do what your mom tells you. And you got to do what your mom. Says, so. <laughs> yeah, I I never heard of this this song before. This is one that you guys grew up with. Uh, it's just an old comedy. It's like a comedy song, more like uh, "Hello Mother, Hello Father." It's like yeah, one of those yeah. kind. It's a it's just a comedy. Uh, kind of like uh, New York Italian, you know, um, Italian, immig- uh, American Italian guy singing about, 
this donkey named Dominic that Santa Claus rides around on because uh, <laughs> the reindeer are afraid to fly around the hills in Italy. And yeah, it's, it's just a cheesy song, but it's that total <laughs> like, it's got the whole, hey, compare, she wants sonare, chichasora, o mandolino. It's got that whole vibe that, thing or whatever you want to call it yeah yeah it's 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 it swings super hard it's i love the tune it's great and it's a a little funny but yeah yeah it always fit that ska rhythm and it also has that old italian you know sound so it's great and karina's on that one too yeah yep she's singing backups on that and then she also sings uh with me on the on the toots and the maytals one happy christmas yeah she added a lot yeah yeah and we're actually going to, um, we're airing this a week before we're going to go actually and, and we're shooting a, vi- a video. We're shooting a video for that tune. Mm-hmm. So that's going to come out too. Yeah, we're shooting a video for Dominic the Donkey and uh, it's going to be pretty cool. But we, we're not going to tell you what it's in there, but it, we're, it's, it's going to be good. Have you already cast the donkey? <laughs> we got our, our buddy. So it's a friend of uh, the Agrolites. He's He's like our... He's our tour manager slash day to day manager slash merch guy. Like he just handles everything for us. His name is Tony, and he's this amazing young guy. He's probably thirty one years old. I think he's just a lot younger, but the kid's like solid. And probably in the last twenty three years of playing with the Agrolites, he's probably the one guy that I could that I've said like over the years I can depend on the most as far as handling things and and making sure he's on top of stuff. The, I don't need to make sure he's on top of anything. He's on top of it. But he's got all these different outlets. He, he shoots videos. He does this. He does that. So, Yeah, and we're working on some cameos, too, um, for, for the album. And, and all of it, this is his brainchild. He, like, came up with all the concepts, and he's, he's telling it all. Yeah, he, when he gets into something, he really gets into it, and he does a great job. So he did a Long Beach Dub All-Stars video not that long ago that came out. Um, the song is called Preacher. Preacher. And uh, I got to be a guest in that video. So when Aton was looking around for somebody to make a video, I was like, dude, Tony's Tony's a guy because not only will he just direct it and film it, he'll find the location, he'll find the costumes, he'll come up with the idea, he'll come up with the script. Like, Tony's going to handle everything. So that's what he's doing right now. He's in the process of putting together the whole the whole thing. And yeah, he's uh, he's already got the donkey casted. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be two people playing the donkey, probably because you need a front end and a back end. Yeah, you need a horse's ass. <laughs> yeah, who's going to play the big ass? I don't know. So, okay, Christmas music. I have a Christmas music uh, discussion. I want to have um, po- a podcast I like to listen to called Switched on Pop. I listened to this episode they did recently where they were talking about this idea of um, how uh, what makes a good new Christmas music because a lot of people sort of depend on old Christmas music. And it's very hard for new Christmas records to sort of break into break into the, the Christmas music canon and kind of have longevity because there's people sort of like just continue to listen to the old stuff. Well, I don't know. Honestly, I think that that, that, that would be what this album is going to be because it's uh, there's no originals on it and they're all, they're all covers of, uh, of old stuff. <laughs> so so, so the con, so your 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 guys thinking on this too is because that's what people want. They want the old stuff. You're giving them the old stuff, but it's got a little twist to it. It's it's ska. Well, I think it's like Aton said. He always wanted to do that Skanatra thing, like he was saying, you know. And then when we did the Christmas thing, it made sense. So it was like 
if it ain't broke, don't fix it or whatever. Yeah, our band is also throwback music. Um, so even the the first concept of us reimagining, I I personally don't like the idea of us being considered a cover band because like the Scottalites were nine people and then we're we're eighteen to twenty people. So I think it's more of like a reimagining of and reinterpret reinterpreting the music as opposed to us trying to like play it exactly the same way as it was. And I think um, this is more of a concept album in that it's not just like a Christmas album, but it's sort of like as if Sinatra flew to Jamaica to create an album back in the 50s. Sort of that concept of like, this has never really been done in this way where it's, there's like a blue beat album that does Christmas music. Or and and some of the stuff is also it's rock steady. This it's a, actually a good mix. I think that's one of the beauties of of the the choices that that Jesse and I made um, was let's not make this all you know well known tunes, but also not all the same tempo and not all the same feel. Like yeah, you know when you hear Blue Beat um, Holiday, you think okay, well all ten tunes are going to be Blue Beat tunes, but we've got you know slower tunes. We've got actually a few tunes that have full string section like you know mm-hmm. cellos and violas and violins like you know um th- it, there's a lot of variety in there so and i think it's the kind of thing that um people that love jamaican music or reggae or ska or christmas will all kind of find something positive in 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 the recording so it's not just going to please just the purists that want to listen to old Sinatra tunes. They're going to be like, oh, this is fresh. I think it's definitely an album that an album that people are going to enjoy listening to outside of just the holidays. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's something that you can, people, you know, even though every single song is a Christmas song, I think it's something that people enjoy a lot more than just playing around the, the holiday itself. Yeah, there's you know? this kind of common ground. Like, um, I'm thinking of my wife's family who's from uh, from the East Coast. and uh, her parents love that old style uh, Sinatra mm-hmm. stuff, um, so they would listen to that. They would listen to the recording because it sounds similar to that. But then also, her, both of her brothers are huge ska fans that love, you know, all, all third wave, all kinds of ska, and they would love it from the ska standpoint too. So I think it um, people can find like in the same living room, everybody listening to that, the record will get something out of it. Not just the people that like the old school stuff, but kind of a new, new approach to it. I want to touch on what you were talking about. The, the initial concept of the band being, um, reimagining Scottalite songs. Can, can you kind of explain a little bit your thought process back then in 2011? What, why you wanted to reimagine Scottalite songs in this capacity? Well, um, I'd been playing traditional ska in LA since I was, you know, it was in the, in the mid, mid to late nineties. Um, so I'd been sort of steeped in that, that whole tradition in, in traditional ska, the Jamaican ska. And, um, so I'd been playing that week in and week out for years and years with the Allentons and, um, Kingston 10. And I did a lot of, uh, back, backup recordings with actually with Jesse, um, Prince Buster and, listen to all those people and i remember um as a horn player you know obviously also being into the jazz world and big band music and all that stuff and actually out of ignorance i thought 
I came up with this idea that had never, ever been explored before. So I thought, oh, wow, I'm coming up with this brand new concept that nobody's ever. And the more research I had done, there were recordings of larger bands back then. Um, we actually just recorded with Carlos Malcolm, who also has done a lot of um, larger ensemble ska stuff. Was it Jazz Jamaica? Jazz Jamaica was a big one too. Right? Jazz Jamaica too, but they they were they were actually a, a smaller band at first. But some of these bands, um, like there's one in Spain, there's one in Italy, there's one in Australia um, that we just played. The with Melbourne, America. Melbourne, one? yeah, the Melbourne. one we just played with in in Mexico City. Um, there's there's a handful. Yeah, there's probably maybe five total. I think at this point that are still playing that are that do that larger larger ensemble. But I felt also this need to one um, highlight the the history of the music and to pay tribute to the forefathers of the music. Um, there's there's a, that's a kind of like a big thing, and especially the LA scene that I've noticed, um, where we had a lot of Jamaicans come back and and perform in Los Angeles, and a lot of us were the the backing bands to these people, and we felt this sort of kinship with the old school Jamaicans and and we know that the history of their music that they were they were forgotten a lot and they were you know a lot of their music was stolen from them and I felt like we need to do something to to pay homage to them so that was that was one thing uh and I thought this no better band than the Scottalites because I felt like they were the 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 driving force behind the whole ska movement um, in its formative years and still mm -hmm. still to today they, they're ambassadors for the music in jamaica um so i love the fact that they're still playing in some format or another um but then also from a from a musician standpoint i felt like um we had this kind of this poo-poo thing about you know ska that's not real music or it's not legitimate music and it's just a bunch of high schoolers learning learning how to play uh trumpets and trombones badly you know this kind of like bad association with it mm -hmm. from a from a like a snooty jazz um perspective and then vice versa there's this sort of like this sort of snooty like oh it's too jazzy i don't like the jazz blah 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 so if kind of from both directions i felt like this there was this like huge rift between the two worlds and i felt like it was my calling <laughs> personally to kind of like make people um just bridge that gap and and uh bring p the two scenes together where the the entire jazz scene in los angeles knows exactly who we are and a lot of them are knocking down our door you know to to play with us and same thing with the ska the ska people i think they they don't look as down at like jazz players and uh, honestly a lot of a lot of the the now jazz players if you talk to them why did you start playing the saxophone why did you play the trombone why did you play the trumpet it's because ska they started playing ska um a, a good example we just talked about him, uh, david urquidy um he's an incredible jazz saxophone player and he came from i, I believe east l.a um played with um yes ska which was a really incredible latin ska band from la of amazing uh -huh. musicians and um you know a lot of those guys went in on to uh work in like ozo motley and 
and beyond and, and get Grammys and all these big things. And they started in the ska scene. Does he? I think he plays in war even. Yeah, he played in war. Now he does other stuff too. I mean, he, he's a, he records and, and works all over the, I mean, he, yeah, he's super busy and plays with a lot of really well-known artists. Yeah. So it's a, a lot of, a lot of cool stories about sort of, you know, people crossing over in both directions. So I, I think it's, it's a really good feeling for me that the jazz world and it's sort of like that line is now grayed and blurred. And so we don't have to like necessarily view sky as like the stepping stone to the great, wonderful jazz world. Right. And, and a lot of jazz players, they love this whole, they're like Jamaican jazz orchestra. What? You know, they're, it's just like their mind is blown and they, and they, they love, they love playing with, with the band and they, they add a lot. Cause I, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I really like. I want consummate professionals playing in the band and, you know, playing incredible solos and, playing all the parts correctly and you know and that's and i get that from that world too so i i I respect both sides of it you know it was a studio project initially but the first time he played a show in 2012 at um hollywood and highland uh it was promoted heavily by uh the jazz station in la Uh, yeah it was a concert series put on by k jazz so yeah k jazz so you were kind of leaning into the jazz side pretty heavily for that first show right you know, honestly, not really. And what was really interesting was they plunked down about a hundred chairs in the middle. And our first set, you know, there were a lot of kind of older sort of like they were thinking like, oh, we're going to drink wine and, and listen to jazz. And you could just see the that as time went on, the, the ska kind of overran the whole scene <laughs> and people just started dancing everywhere and um it the the vibe was totally different if you see like the pictures of the band on the first set and the and towards the end it's like everybody just like not kicked down the the chairs but it was like everybody was dancing and it was a pretty amazing first show we you know we had never ever played together um live before and there were people that flew from like the east coast the midwest the, from the north northwest there were people that flew in for the show uh, that ended up coming up to us, and um, there were tons of people from the scene. Um, you know, older musicians, younger musicians, people that haven't were were going to be great and hadn't even picked up their instruments yet. It was it was a pretty incredible night, and there were a lot of jazz uh, jazz players in the in the in the band, but there were actually also a lot of um, you know Joey Altruda was was playing in the band. Um, his sax player um uh, there we had david rallick he had record recorded with us there were a lot of people from the the old you know jump with joey time um hepcat players mob town just you know it was it was a uh, an all-star band of the highest degree from from the ska scene but also some jazz players too how much of the original band was from the sort of the traditional ska scene in la the original band yeah, the first version of it. Yeah. Um, well, let me count. So, me, um, Brian Dixon, Brian Wallace, Joey Altruda. Um, we had, let me see, um, Tom Cook. Uh, Dave Rallicky was on yeah, our first record um, from Jump With Joey. Um, let's see. 
So I, a good uh, Chris Seawright, um, also from Mobtown. Uh, we also had Wally play um, from Mobtown. So it, it was like a mixture of like C-Spot, Debonairs, Hepcat, um, the Allentons, just like that whole that whole scene. But there were there some people from the jazz scene that weren't really from the ska scene? Yeah, and some of the, some of the ones that I picked were kind of crossover people um, that ended up doing a lot of jazz later on or, you know, I mean, honestly, Joey Altruda is, he, he, he's a jazz. I mean, he, he plays, he played ska, but he, he could play anything. He could play Latin music. He, you can see it in his records, the cocktails with Joey, the all, you know, all of his Latin, you know, mambo bands. I mean, he, he did kind of everything. So there were a few guys like that, that, could kind of do Alan Mosquito was the the alto player when I played in Joey's band he was his sax player and Dave Ralicky also was the bone player so we were all in a horn section together so there's we met in different different contexts you know over the years the takeaway here though is that the LA the LA traditional ska scene is a very unique thing and this band probably wouldn't have happened were it not for what the LA traditional ska scene was Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. And actually, I forgot a really important person that had been playing with a band for a good decade and was the original drummer was uh, Corey Horn. And he, I played in his old band, Kingston 10. Um, and he was a, you know, a diehard ska fan. Um, we actually played his first wedding um, when he was like 19. The Allentons played his wedding. Um, so we know each other for a long time and he, he played drums with us for, for a solid decade, pretty much full time, pretty much every show. And he came from the scene too, but he also, he ended up getting a really good gig with Gogo Bordello. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he also and used to play in a band called the Agrolites. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he was also in the rhythm doctors. Ooh. Right. Yeah. And I played with Kingston 10 too. I think that's where I first met Aton was yeah yeah phyllis dylan backing up phyllis dylan with kingston 10 right so i mean it seems to me that the amount of traditional ska bands in the 90s in la was just no city in this country had the amount of traditional ska bands as la did yeah it was definitely a nice big scene yeah and people showed up to the shows too that was the cool thing there every weekend there was a there was a gig to go to there was something happening every weekend that's for sure and so the other thing about LA's traditional ska scene too is that it um pretty distinct from the punk ska scene. Maybe not initially, but ultimately separate. Yeah, I think LA probably had LA ha- had more of a stronger uh traditional ska scene than than any other place I've ever been to in the country. East Coast was cool because what I liked about going out to New York or anywhere on the East Coast, it was always kind of like a a hodgepodge of stuff, you know, it was, uh, cause they had a lot of Jamaicans moving from, you know, straight over there to New York. So like Vic and those slacker guys, they all kind of, they grew up with like Jamaican people. I don't, we really didn't over here on the West coast for the most part, you know? Yeah. I think there's also a separation. Cause honestly, there are a lot of Jamaicans uh, that live in LA, but it's sort of, um, I don't know if segregated is the right word, but there's, there's certain certain areas that there are a lot of Jamaicans, but they weren't going to the old show. The, 
yeah, the kind of shows that we were going to. You for know? sure, for sure not. <laughs> yeah, for sure not. Let's talk about Steady Beat for a little bit. Steady Beat shows were s- traditional and did not include punk ska. Punk ska was separate. Yeah, it was a whole. that was a whole other scene in its own, the ska punk thing. Yeah. And the Steady Beat thing is like, just like you said, yeah, it was its own little, its own scene, its own like <laughs> subgenre. Or it's not, you know, and it was really LA that was doing that the most. And that was thanks to yeah. people like Louis Lewis and and all that. Like he would have a gig at, at least once a month at the uh, Whiskey a Go Go. That would be mm-hmm. just all old, bands like emulating the old the old ska or the old Rocksteady stuff. So yeah, what do you remember about those shows? Uh, like I've seen pictures and like people dress pretty cool. I think yeah. What I re- what I remember was it was a lot like it was. That's where you went when it. That was where the skinheads were, and you saw Rude Boys back then, and mods, and all that stuff, like flight jackets and pitch patches and pins, you know, and and uh, people with the sixties, the sixties attire, Vespas, you know, lambrettas. It was still like a big thing. You don't really see that. Like we just did that. The uh, the thing we just saw you at the Virginia, the Supernova, right? Uh, yeah. Last weekend, mm-hmm. Agrolites did it, and. Uh, I might have seen three skinheads the whole time that I was there that weekend. You know, I just don't see it anymore. Yeah. Really, I don't see that. It's still out there. It's definitely still out there, but it's not like it was in the early two thousands, late nineties. It was like that was like a big scene out in L.A., L.A. at least. You know, but that's what I remember was you'd see. It was mostly that would be it. It'd be like rude boys and skinheads and a mod here and there. But there also be a lot of brawls. <laughs> And there was a lot of fights. Yeah, there was a lot of that stuff going on. It was uh, the Carson skins, and they, they it was a lot of, a lot of, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of brawls, and but and well, the other that one of one of the things that was kind of sad about it was like you know, if you were coming in there wearing a, you know, with long hair and and uh, if you came in with like you know like long hair wearing a Nirvana shirt, you're most likely going to get jumped by somebody. You know, <laughs> like you like you're not. It, it was kind of like its own club. You know, it was kind of, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous scene too back then. There was a lot, like he said, there was a lot of fights and stuff, but that just goes with any, I mean, any young crowd. But you know, the safest place, the, the safest place of those shows was on stage. <laughs> so, so we were, we were good. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of true. It was, it was good to be in the band because yeah, people liked you for playing the music. So you'd, you'd get, you'd get a nice little form of respect, you know? Like, um, I was a punk little 16 year old weighed about a 120 pounds and, uh, could easily have gotten jumped or, or whatever. But I had a nice little reputation because I played with the, you know, the rhythm doctors. I was like, Oh, he's all right. You know, <laughs> <I> had, <laughs> you know, I had skinhead friends that were like cool with me because it was pretty rad, but keeping people off of you saying, saying, no, no, he's okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> He's all right. <laughs> He's okay. He's on the stage later. Don't break his hands. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tom, were you, um, what is your history? Were you, um, were you into traditional Scott pretty early? Was that sort of your thing back then? Well, um, my brother, my older brother was, uh, he played in a band that was mainly more on like the, not quite two tone, but more like third wave ish. Uh, we also went to school in in Orange in Orange County. What was the band called? Uh, World Tribe. They they did okay. some regular. They ended up 
like two or three years in, they started glomming onto the uh, 311 sound. So they were doing, a li- you know, crossover stuff. But there are a lot of ska songs, fast kind of punk ska. And so that's kind of how I got into me playing live because I'd been playing trumpet since I was in fourth grade and I'd, you know, done the bands in school, but uh, I got a taste of live and they were pretty popular at the time. We'd, you know, play in front of hundreds of people and sometimes thousands of people and we would travel to Hawaii and Mexico and all this stuff. And I got the bug. I'm like, I want to keep playing. And I, uh, I was going to school at UC Irvine and I was um, having a drink with, with my girlfriend at the time. And Mobtown was playing. I didn't know Mobtown from anybody. Um, and they were one of the, the traditional ska bands at that time. And uh, they came in there to the Ant Hill Pub. And like usually you'd have like really bad bands, you know, maybe a four-piece, whatever, bad rock band or whatever. So we would always like go out to the, to the outdoor part, you know, just like go drink and, and not listen to the music. But um, they came in there with like a 10 plus piece ska band and I was just jaw open the whole night. I was like, what is happening? They had two trumpets and it was just amazing. They had a, had a like a steel pan player, a very, very cool band. So I stuck around the whole time. My girlfriend went home. She's like, I'm going to go home. And so I, I stuck, stuck around and ended up talking with the trumpet player, Robert. And I was like, what is this music? They're like, this is ska. And I'm like, no, no, I, that's not, that's not ska I know. Um, and he goes, well, this is Jamaican ska. I'm like, well, what's that? I didn't even know what that was. Um, so they kind of like schooled me into kind of like looking into it all. And um, I said, if here's my, and you know, this was way before cell phones or anything. I, on a, on a napkin, I wrote, I wrote my phone number and I was like, if you know any other bands that do this kind of music and I wasn't in LA, so I didn't really know what was going on over there. Cause I, I lived sort of on the outskirts of LA, but I wasn't never in the city. And, um, two weeks later, Tommy, the keyboard player and band leader from the Allentons, another uh, ska band that played a lot of the steady beat shows, um, gave me a call. And so I wouldn't be playing this music if I didn't go to that club at that time and met those guys and then, uh, you know, started playing with the Allentons. And once I started playing the Allentons, you know, I, I could play pretty well. And people were like, oh, do you want to you want to play with my band? You want to play with my band or, you know, so it kind of like fanned out from there where I started playing with other people within the scene. But the Allentons, I was I was their trumpet player for a good three, four years. We put out a couple albums where I, I wrote songs on on their album. And so that's kind of how it all got started. I see. Okay. Question for either of you. Worst fight you ever saw back then? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I would see the aftermath. I didn't see the actual fight. I mean, some of them happened in the, in the what was that club, Jesse, the, um, in, in like the Pas- Pasadena, like Skydalites played it. There was a lot of, a lot of bands that play that, you know, that, that spot. Yeah, I can't think of the name of it. There was only one. There was only that one place to play too, but I can't remember the name of the game. Yeah, it was yeah. a pretty big club. I remember there being a pretty bad fight that they had to like stop the music and everything. Yeah, you know that's a tough one. There, there's there was pretty much a fight every every show back 
back then. So, I, <laughs> no, no joke. It really was. Well, our drummer, I remember uh, the aftermath. I didn't see the fight, but I remember our, our drummer got jumped really bad. And he, uh, he, was, he was in a bad place. He was in crutches. And I think he broke his sure. arm and his face was all jacked up. And it was, it was really bad. Do you know why he got jumped? From what he told me, because he's gotten jumped more than once, and he was also a skinhead, um, that um, he was saying that he was it was like mistaken identity. Oh, they thought he was somebody else, probably. That's what he told me, but I don't know. He 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 was he he messed around with a lot of girls. He might have been flirty with somebody, some guy's girl, and not known it or something like that. That's that's what I think. About it. Who knows? All right. <laughs> but he looked really bad. He couldn't play with us for months. It was, it, he got really beat up. I got a good... This was, this was years ago. There was one of those uh, shows I think Louis put on, Steady Beat. Uh, it was at a place in Universal City Walk in, in a, like Universal Studios area. And uh, who was that? I think Go, Go Jimmy Go was playing it. Go Jimmy Go, C-Spot. Forget who else the bands were, but this is when the Agrolites first started. Like we haven't, I don't think we even played a live show yet. I think we were just recording. And uh, Brian Dixon, our old guitar player, had asked Lewis if we could get up. I think he was the one that asked. Somebody asked. It could have been Jay Bonner or Roger or somebody. But I was like, can we get up and just do like two songs? You know, just to kind of show, like, say, hey, we're a band. You know, introduce ourselves or whatever. So he was fine with it. So we borrowed Go Jimmy Go's gear and we get up on stage and we do two songs and uh, some drunk guy comes up onto the stage and thinks it's open mic night and starts singing, you know, like getting in the microphone and, and all that. Right. And Brian, who's playing, a, who's playing Go Jimmy Go's guitar, which is this like hollow body, you know, electric guitar. And he does a little uh, uh, like sh like waist blank. He bumps him with his butt like a hip bump. Could you know kind of kick him off the mic? Mm -hmm. And the guy ends up he's so drunk that he ends up falling on his back and like hits the floor pretty hard. So he gets up and starts charging after Brian. And no hesitation, Brian takes the guitar <laughs> off and bashes him over the head with it. Bashes the dude <laughs> over the head. The audience goes wild. Everybody's like, like in shock that this this dude just got a guitar cracked over his head. Meanwhile, this is the introduction of the Agrolites, like the first time we're ever playing a concert. <laughs> oh, dude! So yeah, the cops came and everything. Luckily, we all got out of there. Uh, ended up getting like banned from the place, and then there was this thing called a. Uh, there was like one of those Scott like chat board rooms back in those days. Uh, yeah, like a message board. Yeah, yeah, like a message board or whatever, like a like those. I forget what those those were called, but uh, I think it was Ska a go go or something. But but it was like it was Lawless, Lawless. That was Lawless's, right? Yeah. Was it Lawless? Yeah, I think then it was it was Ska a go go. But I think that's what the, what it was called. But it was like you went on there, and it was like yeah, the word got out that the Agrolites are this like agro agro mean band, and <laughs> don't mess with them. The guitar player beat the dude over the head with his guitar and. And it, Go Jimmy Go is totally nice about them breaking the guitar. Like they were like, they, 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 well, they're Hawaiian. You know, everybody from Hawaii is nice. They're like the most nicest. Like, yeah, cool. Uh, anyways, but yeah, the reputation we got after that was like, oh no, bad boys. Like, uh, none of us were were bad. None of us were like fought or anything. Like, 
but it was it was kind of like you know any news is good news kind of thing like all right yeah yeah so what you're saying is this fight was good for the band yeah it was like years went by and people would still bring <laughs> we do interviews and people would still bring it up like is it true that uh, your guitar player smashed a guy over the head in uh, it's Hollywood? It's like, yeah, it's true, man. You don't mess with him. He's he's a badass. So that was a that was kind of a nice little fun one. But seeing that, I mean, that's all that happened. He, I don't even think the guy got hurt that bad, but he it looked good on stage. Man, it looked good. <laughs> yeah. Scared the shit out of me. How destroyed was the guitar? Oh, I I don't remember. You know how, how years go by and it's just it ex- you exaggerate it in your brain. But uh, sure. no, I, I, it was a hollow body, so he got a good crunch out of it. It's not like it was like this uh, guitar that was hard to break. Like he definitely put a hole right. in the thing, hitting him on the head. And he hit somebody with a solid body. If it was a solid body, the guy might be really critically injured. With yeah, but this was this yeah. was like a hollow body, so it looked cool. It was like, whoa. Like, <laughs> I remember being terrified. I, I like jumped to the back and, and like, like, oh no, and started wrapping up my cord as fast as I could. I, I was like, I ain't getting arrested. I don't want to get in trouble. We were gonna get f- I remember being yeah. all worried the next week, like, are we going to get fined? Or, you know, like, wait, <laughs> the cops are going to call or something. And no, everything was fine. We just got pretty much banned from the joint and never played there again. But yeah, got a lot of uh, attention from it. <laughs> So that was a good fight. I don't even <laughs> know. If call, I don't even know if you call it a good fight, but it was a. It was. It was good to see. It was aggro. <laughs> <laughs> so, Aton, you, um, you, you're on a couple of Agrolites records, right? Yes. Uh, actually, I, I think just just the one. Well, he's on, he's on a Poet's Life with us too, the Tim Armstrong album. Aton played on that with us. Yeah, Poet's Life. Yeah, yeah. It's the one with the red. The red. Yeah, the self-titled, the first Hellcat release. Self-titled. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, was, okay. it was me, Boogie, and Tom, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Aton, Aton was like the main guy. Whenever we do any kind of uh, live gigs or we could afford to have horns back in those days, Aton was always the first guy we'd call like for that Tim Armstrong project. And then uh, the, the Prince Buster backing him up at Sierra World Music Festival. Yeah, that was fun, too. Yeah, and the After Hours, were you involved with After Hours at all? Yeah, I played on the After Hours album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we did all the horns for that one. What's, what's the After Hours album? It was, it was a, a record that Brian Dixon and Brad Pate, who was from C-Spot, had put out. But it was, uh, it was, a, it was a pretty much an all-star band of uh, L.A. Cats, right? Mainly. Yeah, there were, yeah, there were a, few, a few albums that were put out um, that kind of got me thinking, like, this is, this is possible. And that was one of them, because that was the the first concept of like let's put all of the best musicians from that we know in the scene and make an album out of it. It wasn't a big band, but it was like each track had sort of like different personnel. It, it was kind of like yeah, it's kind of like an Exotica album in a way. There was a lot of different. Yeah, it was all kinds, of, and there were like fun, like funny little like uh, interludes in between where like it was like a mock phone call and weird voices and there was like a saw solo and like they they, yeah. they got they got really creative with it the song was called noodle yeah noodle <laughs> right right oh man if you if you haven't heard the after hours album look it up i'm I, yeah, i'm sure you'd love it man greg lee sang on it there's a, like a lot of great singers uh chris murray's on it everybody joey yeah, joey altrude actually has a guitar solo on there yeah Oliver Charles was a drummer. It's it's a it's a great band, and it 
And uh, I don't know if you were ever into C-Spot or not, but Brad Bradley Pate, Brad wrote some beautiful music, man. So that was like his baby, him and Brian, Brian Dixon. Brian was more the engineer of it and producer, and Brad was more of the songwriter. But Yeah, and they were hilarious together, too. And those two, yeah, when they get together, it was like a stand-up comedy act, like yeah. the Smothers Brothers. <laughs> See, <it was> <laughs> So, so the the All Star Band was called After Hours then. Yeah, it was called After Hours. It was just it was it's like Brian Brian Boom Boom and Brad Pate present or BEP. They called themselves BEP B E P. Well, no, that was what Brad called himself. Brad Brad something Pate, but Boom Boom and Beppo or Boom Boom and BEP. I don't know, but it was the album was called After Hours. That's how you could find it. But it was yeah, kind of like a cool. I would say like more exotica stuff because it was. It was like all over the map. Nothing. It, it wasn't like being dedicated to like a certain style of ska or a certain genre of certain era. It was kind of like everywhere. There was like jazzy kind of stuff. There was reggae stuff. There was, you know, more mambo-y kind of stuff. Reggae version of uh, um, Round Midnight. Yeah, with uh, that featured uh, Brian Wallace on sax. He he played the whole the whole solo and the melody and everything. Yeah, it's a it's a great album. And it's kind of a little bit of everything. Actually, there were a, a few songs that we did on that album that um, C Spot used to do live, also. The, you know, Brad's song. Yeah, and that I think that album also kind of brought together a lot of musicians in a way too. Totally, uh, it it made me like feel like we can. Other. Yeah, th that whole concept of like calling different people that you want to be on the album was exactly what we ended up doing to get the Western Standard Time album um, recorded. So. So, so it, it did kind of influence your project. Though. Oh, big time! And I was I was part of it, so I saw I saw it happen. I mean, at the time, also Brian Dixon was working at a really really great studio, and we would. That's why it was called After Hours because the whole thing was recorded for f pretty much free because it was done in the middle of the night when they didn't have to pay for the studio time. Is this the same studio uh, situation that the first Agrilites record was yes. recorded at? Yeah, Agrolites, <laughs> Agrolites, Rhythm Doctors. Uh, we did C Spot albums there. He, Ryan did pretty much everything. Everything was going out of that studio. Even Everton Blender, we we recorded there. Even Everton Blender album, the Tim Armstrong album was done there, but that was like the spot. Brian was a he the house engineer of that studio. It was called Signet Sound Deluxe, and uh, it was mainly a post production place that was doing movies. But it the cool story <laughs> about that that uh, studio was. When Motown moved from Detroit to L.A., that that was Mo West. So the live room that we were recording in was the actual room that, you know, like uh, anything from what? I, I don't remember the exact year that Motown moved to L.A., but it had to be the late 70s or whatever. The Jackson, you know, the Jackson 5 and Stevie and uh, Rick James and so on. Even Bobby Darren did a record there on Motown at, at that studio. So a lot of the gear was was uh originally used on a lot of those old albums and uh the microphones you know it was pretty cool yeah they even had their own their own uh, reverb chambers like actual chambers yeah that that down in the basement they they all became a studio like uh offices now or not now the place is completely gone now but when we were going there but originally they were yeah they were echo chambers that they had converted into into uh offices but um there was even one because i used to intern there brian got me a job interning at the spot and one time we were hanging out and we were in the vault looking at looking at all the old you know uh 
the old reel to reels, you know, like seeing the two inches and this and that. And we found a, 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 a tape box and it had the label on it. And it said in handwriting, it said, Rick James, sweat off my balls was the title. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, dude, this is so awesome. This is rad. Like we were gonna, like we couldn't wait to, and we opened it up, and the damn thing was empty. But it was cool because you'd find little gems like that around the place, you know. Especially the gear, like he said, the gear. Brian always said, "Dude, that microphone you're singing in right now, you don't know how many legends sang in that thing." It was probably a twenty thousand dollar mic or maybe more. I don't know, but it was a big deal to sing into this microphone. <laughs> when was this After Hours record? Was that in the early two thousands? No, I'd say like late nineties, maybe. It took a long time for that thing to get done because, like, like Aton was saying, it would have to, always have to be recorded after hours, and everybody had regular jobs back then. Nobody was full time musicians, so it was like, yeah, Brian would usually the studio would close at like ten, eleven o'clock at night, and then that's when he'd call people over. You load all the gear, then you never get start going until maybe one in the morning, and then you record till fuck you know five a.m. or whatever, and then break down, and then Brian's gonna stay up all night. And then work all the next day with whoever he was doing the session with. So that after hours was such a big, big production because there were so many players and so many guests and so many solos. So he, Brian would know more than anybody. He's the one that, you know, did it, did the record. But uh, like I got a couple phone calls to go down there late at night and be like, yeah, show up at 10 o'clock, track your guitar parts. And then, and then we got another guy here doing percussion for an hour and that's it. And then done by two. So it was like probably a couple of years of trying to get every, everybody tracked, you know, and then all the time that he spent probably mixing it and all that. And I think in those days, everything was getting done on, on a analog. So of course that took a lot more time than digital. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So but yeah, that I'd say like maybe that was like my, probably 99, 99, 2000, somewhere around there. Because um, it was in between Rhythm Doctors and, and Agrolytes when, when he recorded that record. So the Agrolytes um, gets going in the early 2000s. And at around this time, Steady Beat's kind of winding down and uh, uh, Chris Murray starts Blue Beat Lounge. Yeah. How would you describe the change? Was the scene similar or different when it kind of switched over to blue beat lounge well what was cool about blue beat lounge was chris was bringing in any, anybody that would be on the road the thing the thing about the louis shows was it was it was like its own scene like we were saying earlier that thing was just the old school ska scene and all the local bands so it'd always be like the local bands playing there was never really many out-of-towners that would play it was just that L.A. ska scene. And there were so many bands at the time that it was easy to do that. You know, you'd have a different lineup every week. But um, Blue Bee Lounge was bringing in, you know, guys from other other states and even other countries at times. So you got to hear, like, how, how ska was in other parts of the in the parts of the U.S. So I think that's when it started kind of trickling more into, like, a rather than just being so subculture with just skinheads and rude boys, it was kind of like there was a younger crowd. There was kind of like, it started getting into a melting pot, if that's the right word to use, where with the uh, third wave ska kids mixed with like the traditional ska kids and people's minds, like uh, people opening up a lot more towards, towards the genres rather than just sticking to their own thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause, Cause Chris would book like, it it leaned it leaned traditional, but he would still book Puck Scoss. Exactly, yeah. There was a lot of 
punk ska bands that would come in and play, you know. So, yeah, with Louis, Louis, it was it was like just straight traditional ska type type bands, you know. Aton, so in the two thousands, what was you, what were you doing musically? Well, um, I was playing in a few different bands um, in the ska scene. Um, I actually that was when I started feeling like okay, I need to start um, forming my own bands. So um, in late ninety nine and right at two thousand, um, I ended up doing a a recording uh, with Corey Horn and Brian Dixon and a couple of my my more jazz friends and um, Bobby, who's actually the organ player for the Padres now. He's our keyboard player, piano player. Um, so he was I I knew him from like working at the same same music store that we were working at together when he was like 19 and I was like 24. And so he was playing piano. So it was just like a small group of us um, playing ska jazz. So it's kind of like a definitely super jazzy, but um, definitely a ska band. Um, we were called Full Spectrum. And we put out actually a couple albums, uh, one on Riverside Old Syndicate Records um, that's out in Riverside. Uh, that was putting out some uh, some stuff, including the Debonair stuff. Um, that was our second album. And our first album, I just did it on my own. Um, it was more like an EP. And that was right when both Corey and Brian got swooped up by um, the Agrilites tidal wave. So um, pretty much right after that recording happened, they were like, we're touring. We're in Europe. We're, you know, we're, we're gone. So I had to sort of like reimagine it. I changed some personnel. Um, and then that happened for a few years. And then I ended up, op um, you know, starting another band that was called Kingston, uh, Kingston Scott Collective, which was sort of the same configuration as the Scottalites. And we were playing all Scottalites repertoire. So it was pretty much that was a, a Scottalites cover band. And we uh -huh. recorded an EP and we ended up getting called um, to back up some legends um so we were sort of like the backing band for a little while um so um that was sort of our niche well who who did you back up um we were uh well i was involved with derek morgan um and then also um uh trombone player um man from warica what's his name Oh, Rico Rodriguez. Rico Rodriguez. So Rico, we backed up. Um, and there were also some uh, some vocalists. There was like a big thing at the Music Box, a big big show where like Alton Ellis and um, Dennis Al Capone and just a bunch of bunch of old uh, older Jamaican legends. Uh, it was a big show that uh, they put put on there, um, and. We had to back. We 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 backed up a few different people. I'm trying to remember. They weren't they weren't like the top top um, bill names, but Dennis Al Capone and I ended up also doing horns with another with other bands. So I, I backed up a few different artists um, on that show. So um, yeah, and then that's where sort of like the Western Standard Time concept came, which was the same same idea as the Kingston Scott Collective, but as a big band. And uh, I ended up, you know, getting full band, big band arrangements. And then that whole concept ended up blossoming. 
What um just walking stepping back to the uh, backing up the bands before Western Standard um what was that experience like for you to do that was it something was it an educational experience did it uh, was it were you nervous to to back these artists um a little nervous um each each person you know like saying that each person is like if like all Jamaican artists are this way. It's, that's not necessarily true, but there are certain, there were certain Jamaicans that were very easy to work with and certain ones uh-huh. that um, made it a lot more difficult and nerve wracking because they would change stuff on stage. Like we would rehearse a certain way and then they would change everything up for the, for the, um, the gig. So that made it a little bit difficult, but all in all, it was a, a great learning experience. It was, it felt I don't know what the word is, not wholesome, but it, 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 it warmed your heart that you're like these people that you looked up to and you're, you're, you're listening to these recordings and you're, you're now playing with them and making music together. It was, it's kind of a magical kind of unexplainable sort of experience. Um, so that, that was great. It was also hard work, honestly. I mean, not everybody could do the music justice. You know, you can't just ask anybody to do this stuff, especially the rhythm section, honestly. Um, you know, and that's that was the cool thing about L.A. is that there were so many great drummers that knew the style so well that, that didn't, you know, they weren't faking it. They really could play the style. Um, and that's why I think it worked so well because there was a, there was a market for it. People wanted to watch it because the, the scene was so healthy, but there was, there were so many musicians that could do the music justice. So it was like this perfect pairing. It's like, yeah. you don't just have like fans that want it, but the musicians can't deliver, but uh, you also, you had the musicians that could really do it. So it was, it was very fulfilling and also was really great. Like Phyllis Dillon, uh, there were a lot of artists that I ended up backing up and they were, they were all so appreciative. You know, they, they, you know, a lot of them felt like they had gotten forgotten for, for decades and they came back as older, older people. And they're like, I can't believe that people are singing along with our music that was recorded, <laughs> yeah. you know, wh- where we felt like really nobody, well, maybe back then they felt like they were making, making waves, but they thought it, it, they'd been long forgotten been forgotten and all these younger people you know these people were in their 70s and they thought the only people listening to this are the people that were that were young when we were young but there are all these people in their 20s and 30s just like screaming the 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 lyrics with them it was it was really great western standard time if i understand correctly you started the band with um benny goblin uh uh uh, benny goldman benny goldman sorry yeah People used to call him Goblin, but but yeah, Golden. <laughs> but yeah, um, he he was a very close friend of mine, and um, we used to teach together. Um, we used to play music together, and um, he was the person that I went up to and said, "You know, can you take these ten songs, these ten recordings, and um, turn them into big band arrangements?" And so we we ended up doing that together. Um, so he he was a, a, an extreme this was before the band was even a thing uh this is probably a good six months to a year before i'd even talked to brian dixon brian wallace i was sitting on these um physical copies of of the arrangements and didn't really know what to do with them 
And then uh, that that's when I ended up talking with the what I call the Bryans. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's when it really really took off. They were like I, the catalysts that that made it all happen. Yeah. So um, if you're okay talking about it, um, so Benny Benny died right in a car crash in 2016. Yes. Now the band was kind of your guys's band from the 2011 to 2016, right? Um, no, I, I don't think he really, what we, the way we talked about it was he said, I would love to do the arrangements, um, but have me play lead alto in the band. And I said, sure. He's a great, he was a great, great saxophone player too. He wasn't just an arranger. So I said, absolutely. I would love to have you in the band. So, um, it wasn't necessarily his band, but he was an, it was an important part of the band, I would say. I would say that it was more me, Brian Dixon, Brian Wallace were were essentially producers of the recording, and that recording ended up making us uh, um, able to perform, you know, live and make it into like not just a recording pro, pro project, but a an actual band that was that could tour and and perform. I think I read somewhere that there was a, a debate about whether to continue the band. Uh, without Benny, was that was that the case? I think that was kind of like a fleeting idea, but it, it quickly changed to let's see how we can um, not only continue the band but use this as uh, sort of a mouthpiece for for his musical legacy. Yeah, um, I felt like it was my my duty to continue on and let um th- our music be you know something beyond posthumous some something that he can um you know i think it meant a lot to his family and it continues being an important part of um their healing process knowing that he his music lives on through the music sure and uh actually i um we had um an arrangement uh, with Chris Murray, a Chris Murray's tune on our last album. Um, and uh, that, that so happened to be an older arrangement that Benny did. So he was actually on our most recent album, you know, a good five years plus um, after his death. And uh, we, we dedicated the album to him. Interesting. That's, that's great. Yeah. It's funny. I, I'm still tearing up, uh, you know, thinking about it. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a very sad story. Yeah, it, he actually, uh, he passed away um, not only in a car accident, but he was teaching um, at a school um, in the heart of the city in the Crenshaw district and where I also taught. And he was going to, um, from from that teaching job to another teaching job that I also taught. So it felt like, you know, I knew exactly which road he took. I knew exactly the commute. I knew what he experienced in the morning, what he was driving to. Um, it it felt very personal to me, and I ended up uh, taking over his class um, and you know explaining to the parents what had happened, why he didn't show up that week, and it was a uh, it was really traumatic. You know, I mean, he died at thirty six years old. He was he was he was a a newlywed you know, with a huge career in front of him and it just got, and it was just like 
two two assholes um, jockeying for position and um, and racing, and one just jumped over the median and flew and decapitated him. He just took the top of the car off. So it's just stupid, stupid driving. That's horrible. Yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, I, from a from a positive standpoint, um, it gave me it fueled me to to continue the band. Uh, you know, sort of like no matter what. And I feel like um, he taught me a lot of um, what I use now. You know, I he did a lot of the a lot of the cueing and the and the 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 leading of the band and um and you know I used his him as an example of how to do what he did because he did it so well and it, it took me a while to kind of grow into that position. You know, I want to ask about another person that's been in the band. I'm not sure if they still play with you, but um, uh, Alfredo Ortiz. Yeah. So. Um... Alfredo Ortiz was in Yesca, which you, which you discussed earlier, but he currently plays in Los Lobos, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So he he played. Um, what did he play with Western Standard? Did he play drums or percussion? Percussion. Yeah, he was all uh, auxiliary percussion, like uh, congas and bongos and stuff like that. He played a good chunk with you guys, right? Oh yeah, he he was our regular percussionist. He was on our. Uh, from our second album on and i think the first album he, he, i think he was on tour too you know it was he was too busy at the time but um he's done a lot of show, uh, live shows with us he actually just recorded on the carlos malcolm recording with us in the studio um he he did our our last album before that uh, the the album before that and then um uh, yeah, I've just I've known him for a long time, and honestly, I I knew of him before I knew him because I I used to be a big Yes Yeska fan, but uh, you know I didn't necessarily go up to him at the time. But he got um he got the job playing with the Beastie Boys for like twelve years, touring with them. He played with the I didn't know that one. He played with the Beastie Boys. Oh yeah, he was he was their their drummer slash percussionist for like over a decade. Oh, that's rad. Yeah, and actually um. The I was mentioning Gogol Bordello with uh, Corey. What's funny with Gogol Bordello uh, is run. Uh, I don't know exactly which Eastern European country he's from. Your Ukraine. Ukraine. Okay, so he's from Ukraine, and um, he's had for the last I don't know how many years, well over a decade. The the drummers that he's had in the band have been Corey Horn from from the scene. Um, Oliver Charles from from uh, Ocean Eleven, and then <laughs> um, and then Fredo Ortiz. So those those three those three drummers have been pretty much their only drummers for the last like decade plus have come from from our ska scene. Yeah, I was um, <laughs> I was like early, back in the two, early two thousands. I was always like, huh, Coco Bordello. It's got this like sort of. Uh, eastern european sort of like folk sound where it's not ska but it's got this sort of emphasis on the upbeat but you know you can, at a certain point listening to enough of them you're like is there is there a ska element or not no they're huge they're huge uh ska reggae fans 
Yeah, yeah, and I know we had we had Eugene on the on the podcast. Yeah, and what happened? I forget who there. We toured with them year years ago, two thousand six, two thousand not not that right, two thousand seven, eight, something like that. Yeah, and uh, I remember really clicking with those guys on the road in Europe, and um, I don't know who their first drummer was, but this is pretty funny. There was a time when we were looking for a drummer. And we knew Oliver because he used to play with Ocean Eleven, like Athan said. He was with the Rhythm Doctors at a time, too. So I invited Rod, uh, Oliver down to listen to the music and kind of like vibe it out. And he was like, yeah, man, well, I'm totally into this, but um, I just got this call. I can't really talk about the band or who they are, but they play this this gypsy gypsy punk music. <laughs> and, 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 who could that be? This, but, but, but this is the time when nobody really knew you know, like, like who, like he didn't think we were going to know who they, who they are. And I'm all, dude, you're going to play in Gogo Adelo, huh? And he's like, yeah, how did you know? I go, we just got off the road with them in Europe. And yeah. You got to take that gig, man. That's going to be, that's going to be awesome. That band is freaking badass, Right. So next thing you know, Oliver's in Gogo Adelo. And then I think, I think when Roger, I mean, when Oliver quit, that's when he passed the thing, the torch down to Fredo. And then Fredo passed it on to Corey because Fredo uh -huh. got the Los Lobos gig. So it's all connected. All those yeah. guys getting it, you know, playing. But yeah, it's all dudes from the scene, which is pretty cool. Because I think I think all those drummers fit so well for that style, that band. That's perfect. Yeah. So we had we had Eugene uh, Eugene Hutz on the show, um, and uh, during the Patreon portion of it, I asked uh, Eugene like, okay, so you you do some DJ gigs. What are the what are the ska reggae bands that you throw in? Mm -hmm. Any guesses uh, on a band that he said, Jesse? Mm -hmm. And do you have a guess who he said? I no, I no. So the band called the Agrolites. Oh oh shit! Oh that well that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thinking like old old like a Jamaican reggae or something or no no oh, that's Agrolites. No, like I yeah. said, man, that guy we, we we played Italy or somewhere with them. I think was our first concert and uh with them and i remember him being right there like on the stage dancing around just as wild as he does when they play and he had this like he had an agrolite shirt on and he knew all he knew like dirty reggae and all the tunes and it was like i don't know it was pr pretty awesome because at the level that they were at the time it was like damn this is really cool that this guy likes our band so that's awesome that's really cool to hear yeah. Somebody when we posted that episode, somebody on Twitter, like they shared their um, Gogo Bordello story, uh -huh. and uh, it cracked me up so much. They, they said that they saw Gogo Bordello, and they played like a, a long, you know, a full set, and then they get out. Um, you know, they come back. They didn't call it encore. Like Eugene came out, and he put a big bottle of wine, and he goes after party. Yeah. <laughs> and then they play like a couple more songs, and then leave the stage, and they come back, and he brings another bottle of wine after party. <laughs> yeah, all, all night. Yeah, I was always <laughs> seeing him on stage with the just he'd drink straight out of the bottle too. He'd have the big bottle yeah. of wine on stage. Yeah, no, I had a great group, man. I remember when I first heard of them, I was like, this they're blown away blown away by their music <laughs> so the, okay so uh last question i want to ask about for the for the regular episode um you mentioned carlos malcolm i wanted to ask about that because you had made a post about it uh, doing some stuff with him in the studio but i didn't 
didn't know specifically, like, are, are you able to give us any details on what that is? Yeah, from what I know, I, I can talk about it. I don't think they're uh, keeping it a secret. Um, so about four or five years ago, pre-pandemic, um, his son contacted me and said, you know, we really love what you what you do. And uh, we feel like you can do our our dad's music justice. Um, and th- we started kind of like getting closer to making it happen. And then, um, you know, also his book was coming out. He had a, had a book that was being published. And I think it was too overwhelming for for them to both put out a book and do this recording. So it kind of just fizzled. And I, th- I thought, okay, well, I guess that's just not going to happen. And then um, about six months ago, um, I got um, hit up on Facebook Messenger from from him again. He goes, I'm with my dad. We want to make this happen. Can we talk ne- uh, next week about you know doing a recording? So uh, we ended up figuring out that it was going to be five tunes and um you know he was going to have the arrangements and he said you know we the arrangements are already done we're we're good we're there we just need to record it and i thought okay great so about a month before the recording he sends me the dropbox and i open it up and i'm like this is like this is made for like nine people like i you know you contacting me that's not really that's not really us i mean i i could still do it but to to call that Western Standard Time Scott Orchestra is not it's a little bit of a stretch. Um, mm-hmm. So I said, would you be open to expanding it to a full big band where we can actually record it as us? And he was open to it. So um, I ended up um, expanding a few our own on our own, and then he also worked on it himself. Um, Carlos did, um, but he, you know he lives in Florida. And I think he's he's an amazing arranger, but you know he uh, I think used to do a lot by hand. Obviously, most most of that stuff was done by hand, and I think the the computer part um, made it a little bit more challenging. But we got it there, and we ended up recording uh, the five songs um, at a studio in Hollywood. Um, really cool studio. Um, it was the old RCA. Um, piano there that like literally like joplin and like it was the i think from like 19 teens or even earlier until like the 50s or 60s so like literally everybody played this piano that you could in in the sort of the popular world uh played played this piano so and then they also had like these the old rca uh microphones that were like they had all this like gear there that was super like you could nerd out on all that stuff, um, and yeah, we ended up recording um, a lot of his big hits. Oh, very cool! Any so you don't know a timeline on that? I don't. Um, we're still in post on that, but I'm. My job was to, you know, record the stuff and and make sure that I had the right personnel and um, Fritz uh, from the Steady Forty Fives uh, played drums on that um and a lot of a lot of my band um you know filled out the group um but once once we were done recording it's sort of like out of my hands so i i'm not producing it i'm not mixing it i'm not really a part of the post part so 
I'm hoping, but they are, they're talking about us possibly doing like an album release party in Florida where Carlos lives. Um, when it happens, I'm not sure exactly when that would be, but, um, they're, they're planning on putting it on, uh, on vinyl. And also Jesse, they're like, uh, do you know a good vocalist? I'm like, Jesse Wagner. Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was, I was happy to, to get a lot of, a lot of my friends on the, on the recording too. That's awesome. So, um, I think we're going to go behind the curtain now, our Patreon. And uh, I want to ask about a different project that you mentioned in a, uh, an Instagram post a few years ago. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Ska. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.